Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Uh, Turn your Bibles to Romans 12. We're going to be reading from verses 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Chris, for sharing that with us. And uh, thank you, Alex and Natalie, uh, for sharing a little bit of uh, your trip. And uh, Josh, thanks for coming up today and uh, helping to lead us in worship. Um, This is... uh, It's a good day to to serve the Lord, and as uh, Josh was mentioning, he was filling in for Wes today, and I'm filling in for Jamie today. Uh, So uh, Jamie and Angie and their family are on vacation, Uh, so they're having, uh, last I heard, they're having a good time in uh, the Traverse City area and around that whole area, so I don't know if they're back yet or coming back this coming week, but uh, keep them in your prayers too, that they would have just just a good time away and a good time of vacation and uh, that kind of thing. So if you've ever read through the book of Romans, you know that the uh, opening, opening 11 chapters of Romans are all about um, understanding our faith, all right? First 11 chapters of Romans are all about uh, learning about our faith and what our faith is all about. And then when we come to Romans chapter 12, uh, Paul, as he's writing this letter, he sort of shifts gears, still talking about faith, but he moves away from talking about understanding our faith and learning about our faith to talking about how do we live our faith? How do we flesh out our faith? How do we walk our faith? And in the weeks that I've had the opportunity to share the word with you, uh, we've been looking at Romans 12. And last Sunday and today, we're looking at verses 9 to 13, the five verses that Chris just led us in reading. And in these five verses, uh, Paul talks here about, about genuine community and how to experience genuine biblical community. And as we said last week, we're learning from these verses that genuine community occurs when the real me meets real needs for the right reason and in the right way. If we were to outline this passage, that would basically be the outline of these verses. The real me meeting real needs for the right reason and in the right way. Now, if you were here last Sunday, either here in person or maybe you were watching online, uh, you remember that I I shared a little story with you last Sunday. And I'd like to go back and I'd like to share that story again because I want to give you the rest of the story because there's more to it than what I shared with you. I I was a pastor for about 36 years, retired about two and a half years ago. And the first 10 years that I was a pastor, I was a pastor in northeastern Ohio in a suburb of Cleveland. And uh, while I was pastoring there, uh, a young woman, her name was Jean, and uh, she was uh, a wife and a mom, and she had three little kids. Uh, They began coming to our church, and a really sweet lady, and uh, great little kids, and uh, we got to know them, and they became part of our church family. 
But to her husband, Walter, um, he, he never came. He might have come once or twice, maybe at Christmas, maybe at Easter, that sort of thing, but uh, really hardly ever came with her. And as we got to know Jean a little bit better and got to know the kids, we, we, we discovered that uh, some interesting things about her husband. Number one, he was a very highly educated man. And number two, he held a position in an in administration at one of Cleveland's uh, largest hospitals. But the sad thing that we learned about Walter is that Walter was an alcoholic. And when Walter would get drunk, he would get, um, he would get very physically and verbally violent uh, toward Gene and toward the three kids. And it had really grown to the place that it was a, a totally intolerable situation. This just could not go on. This just, the, the family just couldn't stay together the way it was. And so uh, Jean, in conjunction with her counselor and the kids' counselor, and in conjunction with the, the leadership at our church, decided to basically do what she called an intervention. And so there was a day set aside, an afternoon set aside, when the two counselors were there, and I was there, and Jean and the three kids were there, and Walter showed up for a meeting. And the whole point of the meeting was to basically intervene into the situation and provide some kind of intervention into the situation. And uh, when Walter was sober, he was actually a very, very thoughtful man. And when he came to that meeting, he was sober that day. And in that meeting, Jean just kind of poured out her heart to her husband, saying, Walter, you need to understand what's happening in our family. You need to understand what's happening when you get drunk and how it affects all of us. And each one of the kids, even though they were fairly young, each one of them shared with their dad how what was happening in their family was affecting them and what was going on. And it was a, uh, it was a, uh, it was a tear-filled meeting. It was a heartfelt meeting. It was a, a difficult meeting. And at the end of that meeting, um, Gene's counselor uh, basically looked at Walter and said, Walter, you've, you, you've heard from the heart of your, of your family. You've heard where they're coming from. You've heard what you're doing and how it's affecting all of them. Now, Walter, you have a choice to make, and your choice is this. You either enter inpatient addiction treatment, and all of that had been arranged. All he had to do was say yes. So you either enter inpatient addiction treatment, or if you don't, your wife and your kids, they're not coming home. They're not going back. That situation is intolerable. You know, all of us were confident. Um, we had prayed so much for this meeting. And we were so sure, especially after Gene and the kids shared their heart, we were so confident that, that Walter would make the right choice. And uh, so when the, the options were presented to him, we were confident that he'd do the right thing, but he didn't. In fact, basically, when it was presented to him as two options, he just stood up and he just walked out. Uh, didn't want anything to do with, with, uh, with making any decisions or going in the right direction. And so, um, you know, Gene and the kids, they weren't going to go home. Uh, this family was not going to stay together under these circumstances. And we had made some arrangements for some short-term housing for Gene and the kids. But we had thought so confidently that Walter would come around that if he didn't come around that day, certainly, you know, within a week or two, he would come around and, and do the right thing, but he didn't. And so we were left in a situation where we needed to find housing for Gene and those kids for a longer-term situation. So as a church body, we began to pray about that. And as I mentioned last week, uh, the church had a house right next to the church on the property of the church, and the teenagers basically had full reign of that house. And so they called it the youth house. And so they, they met there for their youth meetings. They'd meet there on the weekends. Uh, we opened it up after school during the week, and the kids could come over and do homework and, and be together and invite friends over. And some of the youth leaders would show up and interact with some of their friends and all that kind of stuff. So the kids really used that house for all kinds of things almost every single day of the week. 
And the young people, as they were praying about this situation, they came to the youth leaders and they said, look, you know, we got this house. And there's three bedrooms upstairs. And there's a bathroom upstairs. And there's a kitchen and a living room. And it, I mean, it's a house. And they said, look, we're willing to change the way we do things over there. We'll, we'll, we'll adjust. We'll do whatever has to be done. Could Gene and the kids move into that house? And so we thought, well, that'd be a great place because it's right next door to the church. They're close by. We can serve them and minister to them. And so it happened. And so Gene and the kids moved into that house, the youth house, and they lived in that house for the next 18 months, for the next year and a half. Now, here's the rest of the story. I shared all that with you last week, but here's the rest of the story. During that 18 months, um, when these young people were showing what I would call genuine community, where they were treating somebody else like family, and they were kind of setting aside their own needs for the needs of, of somebody else, during those 18 months, God began to work in the heart of Walter. And after a few months, Walter uh, took a, a medical leave from his job, and he entered addiction treatment. And after he got out of that addiction treatment, he, uh, he started coming over in the evenings to the youth house uh, to spend a little time with his wife and uh, his three kids. And uh, then slowly but surely, it, it just happened over time, he started coming to church. And he started showing up and sitting with his wife and his children in church. And uh, within about a, a year, uh, Walter uh, came and professed faith in Christ as his Lord and Savior. He came to faith in Christ. And after 18 months, that family, they started going to counseling together as a family. They began to see some changes in their hearts as a family. And after 18 months, that family was reunited. And I think it all happened because a group of young people were willing to show genuine community. I, I mean, I know God is sovereign. I know God has a plan. But I at times have thought, if it wasn't for those kids saying, why don't we use the youth house, I wonder whether Walter would ever have come to faith in Christ. Again, I'm not questioning God's sovereignty or God's plan or, or any of that, but I really kind of wonder about that. I wonder whether they would have ever been reunited in all of that. I really wonder. Well, a few years later, we left that church and moved here to Southwest Michigan. And uh, then a few years after that, we were invited back to that church. They were having kind of a special event and invited us to come back down for the event. And during that event, they had a, like a picnic lunch after the event. And so we hadn't been there probably in, I don't know, seven, eight years or something like that. And so, you know, when you haven't seen people in about seven, eight years, you, you're reconnecting and you're talking to this person and that person and catching up on how their life is going, what's been happening and everything. So I'm talking to a couple of people and suddenly somebody walks up behind me and puts their arms around me and just lifts me right off the ground. Now, I'm not a really big person, but I'm a fairly tall person. And I'm not really accustomed to people sneaking up behind me, putting their arms around me and lifting me up off the ground so that I can't move. And so this person set me down and I turned around and here was this 19-year-old young man. His name is Stefan and he was one of Gene's kids. He was all grown up now. And he was currently, I said, Stefan, I can't even hardly recognize you. It's been like eight, 10 years since I've seen you. And we got to start talking and I said, Stefan, what, what are you doing right now? He said, well, I'm going to Bible college. I'm studying to become a pastor. And I said, well, how did that all come about? He said, well, maybe you don't know, but during those 18 months that we lived in the youth house, the teenagers all took me under their wing. And they talked to me about family issues. And Sorry about that. They talked to me about family issues and family struggles and family problems and how God works in the midst of all that. He said, and it's because those, sorry, 
Those kids invited us our, as a family into that house that God changed my family, changed my life, and he directed me into ministry. And I just share all of that for this one thing, and that is that God acts powerfully when we express and experience genuine community. I mean, I look back on that thing even to, 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 to today, and I think if, if that house hadn't been open, if those kids hadn't been willing to change and comp- or adjust their habits and the use of that house, I wonder if any of that would have happened. But it's an amazing thing. So we've learned so far from Romans 12, 9 to 13, that experiencing genuine community happens when the real me, with authenticity and purity, that's verse 9, meets real needs with devotion and humility, that's verse 10. So today we want to look at verses 11, 12, and 13. And in verse 11, we learn... uh, what is the right reason for doing all of this? So it's the real me meeting real needs for the right reason. So what is the right reason for doing this? What is the right motive in doing this? So let's look at verse 11, and let's answer the question, what's the right reason for genuine community? Verse 11, as Chris just read it a few moments ago, says this, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Let's just take a moment and let's just look at each one of those three phrases. The first phrase, do not be slothful in zeal. I think we could uh, legitimately paraphrase that phrase this way. I think it's literally saying, don't be slow or don't delay in doing what needs to be done. Don't delay, don't be slow and doing what needs to be done, all right? Do not be slothful in your zeal. Now, in the book of Proverbs, uh, when Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, or much of the book of Proverbs, he, he talked in some of the Proverbs about this whole thing of being slothful, right? This whole thing about being a sluggard. And in Proverbs 24, verses 30 to 34, he kind of tells us a little bit about what slothfulness looks like. And I just want to read those verses to you. Proverbs 24, verse 30 reads this way. I pass by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. In other words, I looked at all this, and and the, the, the writer had one of these aha moments. He began to figure out, I get what's happening here, and here's what happened. He realized a little sleep, verse 33, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So what are those, what are those couple of four verses there? What do they teach us about slothfulness? They teach us that slothfulness is the failure to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. So when God, here in Romans chapter 12, verse 11 is talking about slothfulness. God is telling us that when he prompts us to do something in our relationships, we need to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Do not be slothful in zeal. Do not be slothful in your zeal. Do what needs to be done when it needs to be done in relationships. And then the second phrase is, be fervent in spirit. Now, that word fervent, if we were going to get an idea in our head of of what, what fervency looks like, I think of it this way, maybe a good word picture is, uh, is if you ever put a, a pan of water on the stove 
and, and turned the stove on, uh, and, and, and the water begins to boil, and it gets to the point where it's just not a light boil, but it's just sort of a rolling boil. I mean, it's just really, really boiling up. That's the idea here behind fervency. He says, be fervent in spirit. In other words, in other words when, when we serve each other and love each other and when we practice biblical community, we need to do it with a, a, a passionate, fervent enthusiasm and zeal. And that's so critical because, again, I, I can only speak for myself, but uh, I know with myself, if I'm not careful, I can find myself doing all the right things, but without any passion, without any zeal, with very little fervency or enthusiasm. I, I find sometimes in my own life that things that should be a delight, well, they just become a duty, you know, just got to do them. I find myself sometimes that what should be a genuine expression of gratitude and love for God just becomes, I got to check that off the to-do list, you know, just got to do it. I find myself sometimes even in my giving, you know, it's just paying another bill, you know, just checking that thing off the list. And so, so that happens to us. And, 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 and how, how, how that happens and, and how we restore zeal and passion, it, it's, it's a difficult thing because God wants us to be boiling over in our love for each other. He wants us to do what needs to be done with enthusiasm when it needs to be done. So how do we do all that? Well, the last phrase tells us. Let's remember that we're actually serving the Lord. We're serving the Lord. He says, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. That's the right reason. That's the right motive behind genuine biblical community. Serve the Lord. Being sensitive to why we do what we do in serving each other is crucial. Because when we're serving each other for the right reason, then we'll do what needs to be done. We'll do it when it needs to be done. And we'll do it with fervency. Well, just do it with fervency and enthusiasm. When we're consciously aware that our meeting the needs of others is actually being done in service to the one who died for us, to the one who provided forgiveness for us, to the one who, um, who, who, who gave his all for us, who gave his life for us, who is preparing a place for us in heaven, when we, when we stop and think that, that he's the one I'm doing this for, he's the one I'm ultimately serving, then that puts me in the right frame of mind. That gives me the right reason for doing it. I'm serving him. I'm serving him. And that's important because sometimes when we're serving others, what happens? Well, other people treat us like servants, right? That's not an easy thing. We don't always get the, uh, don't always get the recognition that we'd like to get. Don't always get the thank yous. Um, we're taken for granted. You know, you might be working as a youth leader. You might be working in some men's ministry or women's ministry or some kind of worship ministry, or you're, or you're working in the back and you're running sound or slides or, or whatever it might be. And at the end of the service, nobody ever says, thanks for the sound. They don't say, thanks for the slide. The kids have a good time and you put all kinds of effort into that youth activity and you know, they walk out the door, you know, and it's easy to get discouraged and die and say, I'm trying to serve them and give them what needs to, they need when they need it. I'm trying to do it with enthusiasm and passion. And nobody said thanks. But if we remember that we're doing it in serving the Lord, the one who died for me, gave his life for me, claimed me as his own, adopted me into his family, forgave me of my sins, you know, give me a, a home in heaven. When we're doing it for the right reason, then when other people when we're serving them and they just treat us like a servant, then it's okay, because that's what we are. But we're serving the Lord, the one who gave us all for us, the one who loves us. So genuine community happens when the real me meets real needs for the right reason. 
You see, genuine community, it's not about warm, fuzzy feelings, okay? And I'm not saying in genuine community we won't ever have a warm, fuzzy feeling, but it's not really all about warm, fuzzy feelings. It's not about uh, being affirmed. It's not about being esteemed. It's not about becoming the object of people's praises. In fact, if I could summarize everything that we've talked uh, about in terms of genuine community up until this moment, I think I would, I would put it into this sentence. So far in Romans 12, verses 9 through 11, we've learned that genuine community occurs when we live in relationships characterized by authenticity and purity, and then out of family love, out of devotion and humility, we give others what they need most when they need the most, and we do it with a passionate zeal because we're doing it solely for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. That's genuine biblical community. That's what it means to live our faith. That's what it means to, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to flesh out everything that's talked about in Romans 1 through 11, right? This is how we do it. This is how we live it. This is how we walk it. This is how we, we flesh all of this out. So genuine community occurs when the real me meets real needs for the right reason, which is the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we've got to do it in the right way. We've got to do it in the right way. So what's the right way behind genuine community? And maybe we could say it this way. What is the right focus that we need to have if there's going to be genuine biblical community? What's the right way? What's the right focus that we need to have? Well, look at verse 12. Paul writes, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Now, folks, I think we all understand, and certainly God understands, that uh, living in genuine community uh, can be a very difficult thing. It can be hard at times, not, not an easy thing to do. Um, and when I feel tired, or I feel a bit overwhelmed, or I feel a bit underappreciated, uh, I don't know about you, but my focus turns inward, you know? Why am I not getting what I think I need to be getting, you know? And uh, then I start having a little pity party, and then I start getting all whiny, and I get all discontented, and I get all complainy, and I get all grumbly, and all that stuff goes on, and then it just kind of all falls apart. So here in these two verses, God's saying, hey, um, you know, when you get that inward thing going, because biblical community can be tough sometimes, you get all focused on self, this whole thing breaks down. So you got to have the right focus. You got to do it in the right way. And in these two verses, verses 12 and 13, I think God reminds us the genuine community requires more than just authenticity and purity. It requires more than just devotion and humility. It even requires more than diligence and enthusiasm as we seek to serve God by serving others. Now, he's telling us in these two verses that authentic community demands both an upward focus as well as an outward focus. So the right way to do biblical community is with an upward focus and an outward focus. Now, in verse 12... He talks about the upward focus. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. I mean, if you think about it, biblical community, genuine biblical community, is probably the thing that, well, one of the things anyways, that Satan opposes the most, right? I mean, if, if on the night before Jesus died, his, his directive to his followers was to love each other as I have loved you. And he said, by this, everybody in the world is going to know that you are my followers. If you have that kind of love for each other, then Satan is going to do everything he can to oppose that kind of love, right? 
Satan does not want people to know who we're following, right? Or when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane a couple of hours after that, and he's praying, God the Son's praying to God the Father. And God the Son says to God the Father, I want my current followers as well as all my future followers to be one even as you and I are one. I want them to experience that kind of unity, the kind of unity that you, Father, and I experience, because then the world will know that you sent me and, and why you sent me, and they'll believe in me. Well, if, if unity in the body of Christ and the expressions of unity in the body of Christ are the way that the world will know who sent Jesus Christ and why he sent Jesus Christ and come to believe in Jesus Christ, then you can bet that Satan is going to do everything in his power to stop that kind of unity. We don't want people knowing that stuff. We don't want people believing in that kind of stuff. So genuine community is always built in the midst of opposition. So it makes it hard. So the right way to build genuine community is going to require some supernatural power. We're not going to be able to just just create it or just do it through our own human effort because Satan's tougher than we are, all right? And the culture is, is imposing its will upon us in so many different ways. So in verse 12, Paul gives us three phrases that I think really instruct us about how to draw on God's supernatural power so that we can maintain an upward focus as we're seeking to flesh out biblical community. Look at these three, verse, or these three phrases. Number one, rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. Now, again, this is kind of a hard phrase for us because in our English language, the word, when we use the word hope, we usually use it in the idea of just sort of wishful thinking. Like, um, um, I, I hope it doesn't rain today. Uh, or I hope it does rain today, or I hope things go better at work, or I hope somebody doesn't show up for work. You know, I hope this happens or that. It's just all kind of wishful thinking, right? We sort of wish, we hope that this will happen. But when the Bible, in the Bible, the word hope has nothing to do with wishful thinking. In fact, the, the word hope in the Bible has to do with something that is not wishful, but something that is sure, something that is certain, something that is, that is firm, it's something that we trust in that is sure and certain and firm. And that thing that we trust in, that one that we trust in that is sure and certain and firm, is the Lord Jesus Christ in all that he has done for us. So the text here says, hey, we need to rejoice in that sure, certain, firm hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, because doing community is not easy. It's a hard thing to do. There'll be opposition from Satan, from the culture. So we need to keep our, our rejoicing occurs as we keep an upward focus on our hope, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And then the second phrase is, be patient in tribulation. Be patient in tribulation. Now, that word patient is also kind of an interesting word. It's actually a word that's, that's used a whole lot in the New Testament. It's one of the most common words in the New Testament. Now, it's not always translated in our English Bibles as patience. Sometimes it's translated as patience, other times it's translated as, um, as steadfastness and other things like that. But it's a compound word, and it's a combination of the word under and the verb to remain. So patience literally means to remain under. And the idea is to remain under pressure, to remain under difficulty, to remain under adversity. In other words, to stick with it when things get tough, he says, be patient in tribulation. Why? Well, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, I think, tells us why. In James 1, James writes this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces 
And again, it may be translated in your Bible, steadfastness, but it's the same word that we find in Romans chapter 12, verse, uh, verse 12. For the testing of your faith produces patience, and let that patience have its what? Full effect. Why? So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So as we build relationships in the body of Christ, difficult things are going to happen. It's not going to be easy. We've got to maintain the right focus. And Scripture says, don't give up, don't give in, don't bail out, remain under, persevere, have patience, because that's when real character is developed. And that's when real biblical community is forged. So genuine biblical community, it's not for the faint of heart. I mean, just think about what we've talked about in the last two Sundays. Number one, we got to take off our masks. Well, that's not an easy thing to do, right? And then number two, we got to only take off our masks, but we got to distance ourselves from evil. That's not always easy. And then we've got to walk in purity. We've got to, we got to glue ourselves to purity. And then we got to enter into the lives of people with devotion and with humility and with sacrifice. Uh, we've got to pay, face some of life's most difficult trials together, and we've got the only way we can do that is when we focus on our sure hope in Jesus Christ, and we see the benefits of remaining under when things get difficult and things get hard. And how do we do all of that? Well, what's the last phrase? The last phrase in the verse is, be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. The picture here is, is of a people who who rejoice because of the sure hope that they have in Jesus Christ. And they remain under, they stick with it. Even when, when building community is tough and hard and difficult and, and the circumstances are, are, are just you know, above and beyond, they, they do it because they're constant in prayer. So if we want to take our community and our relationships to the next level, we need to be constant in prayer in our times with each other and for each other throughout the week. We got to do this in the right way, and the right way to do this is with an upward focus, not an inward focus. It's all about me, but an upward focus. The only way I can do this community thing, God, is constant in prayer, all right? Constant in prayer, patient in tribulation, you know, rejoicing in the hope I have in Jesus Christ. That's what gets us through all of this. But there's one more thing. It's not just an upward focus. Genuine community also needs an outward focus. Look at verse 13. The right way to do genuine community is this. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, I can't speak for you. Only speak for me. But I find myself sometimes in, in situations of, of community and that kind of stuff thinking, well, you know, I got needs. And I got issues. I got problems. You know? Is somebody going to minister to me? Somebody going to serve me? What about my needs? You know, and I get kind of this all kind of looking at me and getting all inward. And then I come to this verse, and Paul says, no, biblical community is built upon, and doing it the right way is when I contribute to the needs of the saints. In other words, community actually takes place, you know, where the rubber meets the road, when I'm willing to take of my resources and use them for the glory of God and meeting the needs of others. I mean, we've got to remember that... Um, um, that as followers of Jesus Christ, we don't own anything, right? In fact, we've been what? We've been bought. We've been purchased. We are an owned people. We are not owners. We are owned. So every resource that I have, every resource that you have, doesn't belong to me because I'm owned. 
and I'm not the owner. And the owner is God. And he simply entrusted those resources um, to me to be used in ways he sees fit. So he can come along and he can tap me on the shoulder anytime he wants and he can say, Mark, um, those resources of mine that I've entrusted to your care, I need you to use them over here. And my only response should be, yes, Lord. <laughs> Contribute to the needs of the saints. Contribute to the needs of the saints. James writes in James chapter 2, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but, not, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, so also faith itself, uh, if it does not have works, is dead. We've got to contribute to the needs of the saints. We've got to be willing to take the resources that God has entrusted to our care and have an outward focus with those resources and say, God, how do you want me to use the resources you've given me, the talent you've given to me, the other things you've given to me? It really belongs to you. I'm owned. You're the owner. And how can I use them? I've got to have this outward focus if genuine community is going to take place. But even beyond contributing to the needs of the saints, you notice in this very last phrase, it says, seek to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. Uh, can I be honest with you? Um, that is a really lousy translation. Um, I have this, I got to be careful what I say here. Um, I, when I think of the word hospitality, I have this vision in my head. Um, the, the church that I used to pastor had a hospitality committee, and uh, they were in charge of food. And uh, that's what hospitality was, it was food. So they were in charge of the kitchen, so you didn't mess with the kitchen, you didn't do much of anything in the kitchen, you didn't screw up the kitchen, you stayed out of the kitchen because the kitchen was food and the food was hospitality. And if something was going on and you walked into the kitchen, you now were a lifelong member of the hospitality committee, you know, and you were gonna serve in that capacity for the next 20 years. And so hospitality was food and food was hospitality and that's all hospitality is, it's just all about coffee and donuts and, 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 and potluck dinners and, and, and picnics and food and that's hospitality. And so when I read this phrase and it, and it simply says, uh, seek to show hospitality, I'm thinking just serve people food. But that's not what it's really saying. It literally is saying this, pursue strangers. That's what the word means in the original text. Seek to pursue strangers. In other words, if we're going to have genuine community, it's got to go even beyond contributing to the needs of the saints. And we've got to open our lives in our small group and our youth group and our other groups to the greater community where people are in need and people are lonely and people are isolated. And we need to reach out to them in community. We need to think of the broader neighborhood around our church and the neighborhood of people that we work with and the neighborhood of others around us. People are out there that don't fit in, people that have needs, people that need love, people that this passage is talking about. And we need to be asking ourselves the question, hey, if we're going to get this biblical community thing right, I've got to have an outward focus. How can I pursue strangers? How can we love them? How can we help to meet their needs? How can we show humility and devotion? How can we show uh, fervency and other things toward them? When the world sees God's people loving those who are unlike them, and especially those that are somewhat unlovely, the world will take notice. 
and biblical community will take place, and God will use that to make a huge difference in the lives of people. So let's pull all this together, all right? Think with me again. On the night before Jesus is going to die, and he knows he's going to be crucified the next morning, he's not talking about the weather, not talking about uh, uh, the new football season coming up, not talking about, you know, back to school. Uh, He's talking about the stuff that is most heavy on his heart. And on that night before he dies, he's meeting in the upper room with his disciples. And in one of the last things he says to them, he says this, he says, a new commandment that I have for you. And that commandment is that you love one another as I have loved you. He says, by this shall all people know that you are my followers if you have that kind of love for each other. And then a couple of hours later, they've left the upper room. They've gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying alone. God the Son is praying to God the Father. And I don't know about you, but when I pray, I know a lot of my requests get kind of screwed up, right? There's a measure of selfishness involved in them, and and I don't totally understand God's plan and will, and so I think it should go this way, and that's the way I pray it. You know, so because it's a human talking to God. But when God the Son is talking to God the Father, he's got the right requests. I mean, these are prayers that work, right? So God the Son, again, he's just hours away from dying, And he's talking to God the Father, and his one request is this, let my followers now and in the future have the kind of unity that you and I have, Father. Because if they have this kind of unity, then the world will know you sent me, why you sent me, and they'll believe in me. So on the night before he dies, his desire for his followers is that they love each other like he has loved them. And that they, his, his, his desire for them is that they experience the kind of unity that God the Father and God the Son experience, because if this happens, it'll change the world. What do we call that? We call that today genuine biblical community. Loving each other as Christ loved us and building into our relationships within the church body and within the greater community, unity. We call that genuine community. And genuine community, I believe, is one of the most powerful apologetics on the face of the earth. It is one one of the most powerful testimonies for why we believe what we believe. It is perhaps the greatest need amongst Christ's followers today and the greatest means for an unbelieving world to believe that what we believe about Jesus and what we say about Jesus is true. It's true. And they see it in how we live. They see it in how we live. So genuine community happens when the real me meets real needs for the right reason and in the right way. And what Paul is trying to tell us here in verses 9 to 13 of Romans 12 is is we can't live our faith alone. This whole faith thing that he's been describing in chapters 1 through 11 in Romans, and he gets to chapter 12, and he says, here's how you live it, and he comes to verses 9 to 13, and he says, you can't do it alone. It takes community. It takes doing it together, and here's how we do it. Here's how we do it. Now, folks, I know, uh, when, when, I, when I get ready for these sermons last week and this week, I look at all this stuff, and two things occur to me. Is, number one thing that occurs to me is, Mark, you are a failure at this. <laughs> That's the first thing that strikes me, is, Mark, you're not doing that, you're not doing that, you're not doing that, and you do that sort of halfway in this, you don't do well at all, you know, and, and why are you talking about this? You know? <laughs> uh, so that's one of the things that occurs to me. And the second thing that occurs to me is there is so much here. I mean, the real me and authenticity and purity and real needs with a, a, a devotion and humility and in the right reasons to serve Christ. I'm thinking, wow, you know, I just feel like giving up and going home, right? And crawling into a hole 
because I can't do all this stuff. Do you know, it's not about being perfect in community. It's about persevering in community. It's about nurturing community and growing community. So, you know, as we listen to this stuff and we think about these verses in Scripture, you know, maybe there's, there's one thing that God puts on our heart, one thing that he impresses on our heart, you know, one little part of this, say, you know, that's, 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 the, that's the baby step that I could take so that I can persevere and grow and nurture community. There's, there's a million things that are talked about in these five verses. I can't do them all. You know, it's like this big elephant. Well, how do you, need, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. So what is the one bite? What is the baby step that God would say, here, Mark, is what I want you to do? Here's what I encourage you to do. So what is the baby step to developing and nurturing and growing biblical community that God wants you to take and he wants me to take this week, tomorrow, today, this month? It's going to be different for you than it is for me. And we won't be perfect when we take the baby step, but we'll persevere and we'll grow and we'll nurture and God will be honored and glorified and it'll make a difference in the world that we live in. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, we, uh, we thank you for these few verses in Romans 12, and we thank you, Father, for um, reminding us of some of the things that are, are necessary for uh, living together as a body, as a family, as a community. Lord, I'm thankful that Romans didn't end in chapter 11, just telling us, giving us an understanding of our faith or teaching us about our faith. Now we come to chapter 12, and it says, okay, now here's how you do it. Here's how you live it. Here's how you walk it. Here's how, how it gets all fleshed out. Father, help us to realize how much we need each other, how much we need to, to love each other and serve each other and grow together with each other. Father, I don't know. It just, um, it just seems to me, Father, that uh, in recent months, it just seems like there's more divisiveness in our country, uh, more divisiveness in, in our communities, and maybe even a little of that is trickle down into the church as we've, we've had so many differing opinions on different stuff. And Lord, I, I just think that is, that is just Satan working overtime to pull us apart. Lord, help us to take your word, take it to heart, to take a baby step this week to say that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And that we would do it for your honor and glory and because of that sure hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we do pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.